Hi, everyone, and welcome to our very first listeners to our podcast called Replay. I'm so excited to share this with you. And um, let me start by introducing myself. I am Shama Rangwala. I'm an assistant professor at York University, and I'm talking to you all from Amiskuchiwa Sky again, um, which is in Treaty 6 ter territory, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta. And uh, this podcast is part of a project that I'm uh, working on with a bunch of comrades uh, called Pedagogy and Praxis. And this is a really fun part of it is just talking culture with Desmond Cole. So Desmond, do you wanna say a few things about yourself? Yeah, this is exciting. I am coming to everybody from Treaty 13, uh, also known as Toronto or Tuckeronto. Uh, treaty 13 being a treaty signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. I am a journalist, activist, and author here in Toronto. And um, Shama and I like to talk shit about everything, but mostly about movies, music, uh, culture, TV, for the purposes of this podcast. So yeah. Yeah, and we we both uh, do a lot of kind of uh, quote unquote serious work talking about, you know, like my work is on the adaptations of racial capitalism. Uh, when I'm on the media, I'm usually talking about uh, a lot of the violences of that. And uh, we just thought it would be fun to do a podcast that yes, is about the violences of racial capitalism in lots of ways, but through the you know, narratives that surround us, all of the kind of shows that we watch, you know, I got into video games this year. So really excited to talk about some of that. Um, and we're, you know, going to focus on the politics of culture. And so, you know, culture is movies, films, all of that. It's also cultural practices, and kind of whatever we want, because, you know, we hope that this is kind of a different way to hear from us than maybe, you know, if some of you have heard um, either of us like on the media or like in any of our writing, um, this is gonna be a bit different. It's more of, you know, the stuff that we kind of watch for fun, but I know that I can't turn my brain off. I'm always kind of analyzing the political aspects of things. And so that's uh, what this podcast is gonna be about. Yeah, I, I guess people are probably hearing you say that and going, oh my God, they're gonna, talk about racial capitalism in movies, not necessarily, but <laughs> kind of, because I don't know, we live in a world, <laughs> if, if you have noticed that, it's a fixed thing. It, it, is, it is a kind of determined by history before we got here sort of thing. So we cannot escape the confines of the world that we live in, which is a world dominated as you said, biracial capitalism and a lot of other dynamics. Mostly, I think we're going to talk shit about movies and film and TV that we like, video games, and how those things relate to the culture that we find ourselves in. So. Yes. And some of this stuff is stuff we really like or really love. I mean, what we're talking about today is a film that, you know, is very dear to me. And I think critique is part of that, you know, really connecting with uh, the objects of our culture. We're, we're, it's going to be very sprawling. We're going to have lots of different kinds of objects of 
analysis. But I was thinking, you know, um, Desmond's other projects, yes, everything, you know, the question of that is, is everything about race? There's everything about capitalism. Yes, everything. <laughs> yes, everything indeed. You can check that out, by the way. We'll give you some links to that website. But today we thought we would start off with a film that is actually, it's very appropriate for our first podcast because uh, it is the first movie that Shama and I ever watched together and a movie that I think is a very formative piece of our friendship. Um, it is an almost 30 year old movie. Uh, if you are our somewhat advanced age, you should probably know it. It's called Jurassic Park. So Jurassic Park, really, really near and dear to me. I read the book by Michael Crichton a few times uh, when I was a kid. So Michael Crichton uh, wrote a lot of books that were kind of about science and politics. He was also like really racist. Um, he wrote this book. I remember reading this as a kid, Rising Sun, that was so, you know, anti-Japanese, uh, basically like Japanese, uh, you know, business is gonna and tech is gonna like is it take over America or is like a threat to America um but you know I also um I came into reading Michael Crichton because of Jurassic Park um and Steven Spielberg's film is a perfect film I mean I is that a, is that a stretch to say it's a perfect film I hate I hate to admit it because Steven Spielberg is just like it's a guy has so many issues but he knows how to direct movies and this movie is nearly flawless in my opinion um came out in 1993 i was 11 um just old enough to watch this movie without being completely terrified off my ass but like you know this movie has one-liners it has action uh a little bit of romance um and some really interesting commentaries about science and about um, our inability as human beings to restrain ourselves once we have power and can, you know, use that power in a creative process, you know, especially one involving life. And, you know, it's so interesting brings in all of these aspects of what it means to create life, what it means to be responsible for that creation. Can you really control your creation? This movie went to all those places. Now, when I was 11, I didn't care about any of that shit because there were velociraptors in this movie. And I just wanted to see the velociraptors. And I did see them. And I was fucking terrified. But as I have watched this movie over, I probably watched Jurassic Park, to be honest, more than any other movie ever. And every time I watch it, I think about something new or something different about what this movie is trying to tell us. I watched it again in advance of us having this conversation, Shama, actually. And I just I just think it's wonderful. Yeah, and it's interesting because I I was uh, I loved the dinosaurs when I was a kid. And of course, there were all of the merch tie-ins. Like I remember I had a, 
a Jurassic Park like drink cup and, and things like that. Um, so there was a whole kind of Jurassic Park ecosystem at the time when this this film came out. But I was you know interested in science. I was a bit of a science nerd, um, and I also just the uh, Michael Crichton his he was a climate denier. You know, like there, he is kind of famous for writing these books about science, but the science itself, um, I remember just even today, you know, I looked up, I'm like, can we really clone dinosaurs? Like, is there, is there a way to do this? Because it feels convincing when you watch the film, especially like if you're a kid. So I was very much interested in all of, all of that as well. I've seen it so many times that, um, yeah, I also watched it in anticipation of, of, of talking today. And I can anticipate the editing, like I'm like, oh yeah, there's like a shot of, of Sam Neill's face or, you know, the, it, it, it's so iconic, it kind of like burns into your, your brain. Um, so Jasmine, do you want to bring up, like, what are your kind of most like iconic moments or most significant moments out of this, this film for you? Let's do a really, really quick synopsis assuming that someone in this world has not <laughs> this movie he's listening to this podcast. Uh, I guess we're going to have a spoiler alert here. If you haven't watched the 30 year old film, the 1993 classic, you may want to stop the podcast here and go watch the film. We are about to ruin it for you. You've been warned. Essentially Jurassic Park takes place in a uh, modern day 1990s with uh, these two uh, scientists, uh, Dr. Grant played by Sam Neill and uh, Dr. Sadler, played by Laura Dern. Wonderful, wonderful Laura Dern. That was how I was first introduced to her, by the way. And um, they get a visit while they're doing an archeological uh, dig, which is their passion. They get a visit uh, from this tycoon um, named John Hammond, who tells them he wants them to come to an island that he has leased and that there is some kind of theme park or attraction on this island that he really hopes to get their blessing on. And they have no clue what the hell he's talking about. Uh, but he eventually encourages them to come along with another scientist, uh, Dr. Malcolm played uh, by, um, by Jeff Goldblum. And uh, so they all go along with a lawyer, because you have to have a lawyer, to this island and this island is a place where John Hammond and his team have created dinosaurs. They have found a way to harvest ancient dinosaur DNA and to birth live dinosaurs into the world and to attempt to control them within this park called Jurassic Park on this island. Um, first, you know, Everyone is amazed when they see the dinosaurs. How could you not be? But then they start thinking about it and all the scientists are like, you know, you can't really control life in this really neat and tidy way that you think that you can. Something bad is probably going to happen. And John Hammond and the lawyer, they can just see money bags, right? All they can think about is how much fucking money this is going to make. And so they kind of hold on to their idea that like, this is going to work. Everyone's going to love this and everybody's going to make a fortune. And within, you know, a day of everybody being in the park, uh, things start going wrong. The dinosaurs start getting loose. People start getting eaten and killed by dinosaurs. 
And, uh, you know, to kind of jump to the end to save you uh, all the drama. And if you actually want to watch this still, um, the scientists at the end escape barely with their lives after a lot of people die and decide that Jurassic Park was actually a really bad idea and that their instincts when they came to the park and thought that it was a really bad idea were in fact correct. So that's the movie in a nutshell. It is really, really wonderful. Um, the score of the movie is done by John Williams and both of us agree that this is just an incredible, incredible musical score. It really adds so much to the movie. I think the acting's great. The one-liners and you know comedy moments are good. The action's really good. Something I noticed, Shama, watching it this time, and I thought about this a lot, is how like the only thing that the protagonists can do in this movie is run away from the dinosaurs. You never actually see anybody killing a dinosaur. There's no big like triumphant heroic moments. It's literally just humans being afraid and running away from this awesome power that they should have never unleashed. And I, I think that's interesting and might not be done if that film were made today. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of the sequels. Um, I will watch them, but they seem much more action um, oriented rather than the really, I think, kind of delicate balance of sort of tension and release that happens in this first movie. Um, I think Jurassic Park is the greatest movie about insurance of all time, um, because it is kind of fundamentally about insuring against risk and trying to create a system that is so coherent that you can ensure it against system failure. And then of course it is about that like cascading failure that you have this storm, you have you know, the incompetence of um, the guy from Seinfeld, uh, Dennis Nedry. Yeah. Dennis Nedry, yeah, yeah. That it, that it's his kind of incompetence. Um, that there are all these kinds of little things that break down that cascade into the entire system um, breaking down. But it is about insurance. None of them would be there if they didn't need insurance, which is all about kind of protecting against risk and some kind of like uh, you know future future either like coherence of the system or or breaking down of it. So uh, yeah, I mean, it is a movie about capitalism and how capitalism ruins everything, uh, <laughs> which is going to be a theme of this podcast. Uh, but really, like, I was thinking so much watching it this time. When they first see those uh, Brachiosaurus at the very beginning, it yeah. brings tears to my eyes, like even in my like, you know, 20th, 30th viewing over, over like that many years. It's such a beautiful moment of wonder and you know that this wonder is the product of somebody who wants to make money. Now Hammond, I think they, the film tries to soften him because he says, I want this to be affordable for everybody, not just the super rich. And the lawyer's like, we'll have a coupon day. And there's this moment where they both cackle in a very like, you know, cartoon villain sort of way. But you know that, you know, with, with Ian Malcolm slamming the table saying, you're selling it, you're selling it. And they're talking about all of this merch. This wonder is already kind of contaminated. 
You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well... And it's so relevant today. Uh, another show that I've been watching uh, is called For All Mankind. And that's like a recent show, 2020, 2021. Um, and it is about the space race and all of the things that we can achieve. And just thinking about this with, uh, of course, the IPCC report that, that came out, like we do actually have all of the science. We have all of it to be able to mitigate the worst disasters. Are we going to do it? Um, you know, capitalism ruins everything. So Jurassic Park is really like it has that wonder in it, that wonder at what we're what, you know, people are capable of um, in terms of like science, which of course, this one is like, we should not have done it. Um, Ian Malcolm, you, you were you know, you, you were spending so much time uh, wondering if you could, you didn't think it, if you should. Um, but just, you know, that it's, it is a really beautiful moment, but it's, it's already contaminated by capitalism. And I think that there's this feeling that we have, like, we want to feel that wonder, but that wonder of like going to the moon, say for all mankind, they're, they're doing that because they want to like, you know, they're in competition with the Soviets. So it is very much about the glorification of American capitalism. Um, is there like, how can we experience this wonder without it being contaminated? This is something I also really picked up on watching it most recently as well, is the, the way that they depict this sense of awe and wonder that these scientists uh, who have loved dinosaurs and studied dinosaurs their whole lives get to experience when they first um, enter the park, you know, when they uh, see the Triceratops for the first time. And Ellie's reaction and Laura Dern's character, her reaction when she sees it is literally just to start crying. Why, like, I can't even believe I'm seeing this. I can't believe I have this moment. Like, it's so good. It's a really honest, I feel like, depiction of how you might experience that moment, given that it meant so much to her and to Alan Grant. You know, when he's lying on the Triceratops stomach as it inhales and exhales, listening to its breathing, they do such a great job there of drawing you into that sense of awe and wonder. And of course, the soundtrack of the movie really heightens that, I think, as well. But, you know, you said capitalism destroys everything. This movie does a good job of showing us how also capitalism creates a lot of things. And we can talk about whether or not it should, um, because it can, but should it. But capitalism also makes this possible so as you say this movie is about insurance the the only reason that these scientists are brought to the park to give it their blessing is that um somebody gets eaten by a velociraptor <laughs> in the first scene of the movie and people are like oh shit like there are liabilities here what if a tourist what if a uh, visitor gets eaten by one of our dinosaurs when they come to stay at our dinosaur resort. And so the, um, the scientists are brought in to essentially give it their okay so that the insurers will, uh, you know, back off as the lawyer says in one of the first scenes of the movie, you guys sign off on this park and the insurance guys will back off. So it is really about capitalism giveth and capitalism taketh away because only 
these rich investors along with John Hammond could even conceive of and create something and do years and years of research. And then of course you have this wonderful side narrative with Dennis Nedry, who is hired as a tech hand at Jurassic Park, but who is unhappy with the amount of money that he's being paid. And so he makes a deal with a rival corporation to steal Jurassic Park's science secrets, right? To get the DNA of these dinosaurs and give them to a rival company. And his scheming is what ends up setting off this horrific chain of events that shuts down the park and gets a lot of people killed. And so it is a really interesting balance of, yes, capitalism ruining, but capitalism also creating something out of this like rich investor, let's make some money interest, which then goes horribly wrong. And you're tempted because it's like, well, what if it didn't go wrong? Mm -hmm. What if you could do something like this, as you say, what if you could provide an experience or a place like this without all of the calamity and risk and violence. And the film knows that knows that question is important to ask because there's the scene with Hammond and Sattler where they're eating ice cream and he says, well, next time, well, next time, as if Dennis Nedry, um, that is just a problem that needed to be contained or it's a problem outside of the system that like he is an individual who made a choice. Actually, no, it's very much about how the system itself functions, which is that laborers are exploited. Um, you know, like he is a wage laborer. He feels like, you know, the, the film makes him villainous um, because he has, you know, that like bikini woman on his uh, computer and there's like a mess and he's eating, uh, you know, gross snacks and they say you have butter fingers. Like they try to make him grotesque as if he is some kind of like contaminant or exceptional when actually it's very much part of the, if capitalism created this, then you take everything else that comes with capitalism too, which is exploitation, which is competition, which is like corporate espionage, right? Like that is actually part of the system too. It's not that like, mm -hmm. so when Hammond says next time we won't have things automated as much or next time like we won't hire somebody like Dennis Nedry that he actually misunderstands what capitalism is, what the system he's working with is. So what's so clever about Jurassic Park is that there's the system of the park, which is, you know, the electrical grid, the automation, all of that. There's the kind of formal system of the editing and the ways that it plays with, you know, shock and kind of contingencies in that way. And there's this like greater system of capitalism that, you know, the park is in that the film of Jurassic Park is a, is a part of, of course, as well. Like I mentioned, having like a Jurassic Park cup and, and the whole Jurassic Park ecosystem. Yeah, we've got, I mean, we, we have to talk about the branding, the, the, the almost like unprecedentedly brilliant branding of this movie and the way that, um, so the, the scene that you're talking about where they're eating ice cream, um, you know, Dr. Ellie Sadler and um, John Hammond are sitting in one of the big fancy rooms in the visitor center eating ice cream. And um, all the ice cream is melting because the power has been shut down. So Hammond in his depression, knowing that his grandchildren are lost in the park with Dr. Grant and his fear that they may not come back just goes and 
does what a lot of people would do and starts binge eating ice cream. And Ellie joins him. And in the shot that pans over to them sitting in this room, they go through the gift shop. This is really one of the most fucking brilliant things I've ever seen. (laughs) Because the gift shop has Jurassic Park water bottles and Jurassic Park pajamas and Jurassic Park toys. And it just does this really brief pan over of it as it goes to the two of them sitting down, pan through the gift shop, where you're seeing actual merchandise Mm -hmm. that would later be sold on the heels of this movie. It's unbelievable. And I actually paid a lot of attention to that watching it this time and seeing like, um, you know, the number of times that that logo gets flashed. They actually have a scene at the beginning when they fly in and land the helicopter where you can see the two Jeeps that they're going to be driving in already parked there. But then they do a cut scene where they have the Jeeps backing up as if they just got there, even though you literally just saw them parked there so that someone can open the door of the Jeep and show the Jurassic Park logo. The, 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 the marketing was there from the beginning in a, in a way that I think probably wasn't necessarily unique to the early 90s, but was done so effectively that you kind of, you got to give it up. Um, They really knew how they were going to continue the lore of this. And I don't think that this can really be overstated. You know, I I live in a city where the basketball team is called the Raptors. And I remember when we were getting this basketball team and they were having a competition to decide, like, what's the name of this basketball team going to be in Toronto? Like four of the finalist names were dinosaur names because everybody was just so obsessed with Jurassic Park. And like, I remember like one of the other finalist names was like the Torontosaurus Rex. Like that's how (laughs) completely, completely fixated on this we were. And so, you know, to have now the uh, outdoor space where you can watch games just outside of the Air Canada Centre in Toronto and that space is called Jurassic Park. Like, the legend lives on. They knew what they were doing and it, it was effective, probably even more so than they could have ever appreciated at the time. Um, there was a Jeep in Edmonton. I don't know if it's still around, uh, but I would see it around uh, White Ave all the time. That was a Jurassic Park Jeep. And this was like probably the last time I saw it was the summer before the pandemic um, around the city. And yeah, everybody you know, people love Jurassic Park and I think quite rightly so. Um, I'm thinking about reproduction. I wanna talk about reproduction in the dinosaurs, but even just thinking about the reproduction of Jurassic Park itself, there's so many Jurassic Park movies that came after it. Um, It's like Jurassic Park begets more Jurassic Park. You know, (laughs) now it's like a, it's like a affiliated with, basketball but it's like life uh finds a way is you know the title of this episode and you know famously uh ian malcolm's line where they're like oh do you think like uh all female dinosaurs can can reproduce and they kind of make fun of that and it's like well you know life finds a way um but also capitalism finds a way like you know, the Jurassic Park is like reproducing itself. Like we're going to have another Jurassic Park, I think out next year, Jurassic Park Dominion. So, uh, you know, maybe next year we'll we'll do an episode on that. Uh, but 
Yeah, it's like these kind of, these franchises kind of keep reproducing themselves. But I did want to talk a bit about reproduction. We have to because of, you know, baby dinosaurs, but also the ways that films gesture to the future through reproduction, through children and babies and, you know, a little baby raptor hatching out of an egg. Uh, Grant finds those eggs there. So it's very much about reproduction. You know what this is? dinosaurs are breeding what's so interesting about this film to me about that kind of like reproductive futurity is you know the relationship between grant um and sattler it like there's just one little line when ian malcolm is like are you guys together and he says yeah but otherwise when i was a kid i didn't get the sense that they were a couple they are but because it doesn't hit you over the head with it like so many like 90s movies do but what it does show and this is really explicit is their conversation about children at the beginning and that grant's journey is not about dinosaurs it is about making him suitable for fatherhood, ah, right? It is about <laughs> that hetero couple form and reproduction because all kinds of, we're going to talk about so many science fiction movies on this podcast because like Desmond and I love that shit, right? But a lot, you know, we know that like science fiction films always like have some kind of, even the Martian had a baby and that was about like saving a dude from Mars, Right. Like it still had a baby in it. Arrival is like really interesting because it it fucks with the temporality with the with the baby and futurity and, and lots of other things. I love Arrival. But Jurassic Park is also about this life finds a way, not just with the reproduction of the dinosaurs, but that Grant has to become a good dad and that he looks out of the helicopter at the end and sees the birds. And he's like, yes, those are the descendants of the dinosaurs and that is the natural order of things is not that we have dinosaurs but that we have um that we have birds and that him reproducing or like being a father is also the natural order of things man I'm, i just i remember the first conversation we ever had about this movie and you started talking about white reproductive futurity and <laughs> i just you were just so bang on with it though because you know, even when he's looking out the window watching those birds, the two children who he's just shepherded through the park and made sure got out alive, uh, Hammond's grandchildren, Lex and Tim, are lying in his arms in the, in the helicopter on either side of him. And he literally looks over at each of them and then gives Ellie this knowing look. And after being this curmudgeon children stink, who really wants children kind of middle-aged guy the whole time, suddenly he has gone through that evolution. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really, really obvious to me now, but like you said, when I was watching this as a kid, I didn't really pick up on that. Um, I also think that this ties into what I see in a lot of, um, in a, in a, in a lot of um, science fiction, you know, you mentioned uh, how, how this is a theme. I've been watching Snowpiercer, recently and the idea on this runaway train during climate change um a train that can't stop because the earth has literally cooled so badly that if you go outside you die 
that when one of the characters gets pregnant, it's this like hopeful moment because again, futurity, like we can, we can believe and we can dream because we can continue as human beings to reproduce. We see this idea everywhere. In the case of um, Jurassic Park and in a lot of other movies, I also think that we have to contrast this white reproductive futurity with what happens to black characters in so many mm. science fiction stories. You all probably know by now the trope that like in horror movies, which is not necessarily science fiction, but work with me for a second, but like there's this kind of almost like a joke or meme that like the black character gets killed first. But I've been noticing this about space movies. I've been noticing this about science fiction movies. It's not just horror. And what happens, uh, the, I mentioned the very first scene of the movie, dude gets eaten by a raptor while they're trying to like load the raptor into its cage in the park. Well, that's a black man. And the only other black person with like speaking lines that I can think of in this movie is the character of Samuel L. Jackson, who is kind of a co-techie along with Dennis Nedry, but not as powerful or knowledgeable. And when the power goes out, he decides to take a stroll up the road to the breaker yard to flick the power back on and he never comes back. And you only know he's dead when Ellie goes to the same area to look for him and see what happened to him. And an arm, the decapitated arm of this guy falls on her shoulder and she thinks that he's there to comfort her, but in fact turns around and the arm just comes along with her and she realizes, yeah, this dude's dead. The raptor got him. And I think that this is important to the notion of white reproductive futurity because whether they are doing it consciously or not, whether it is um, really just a meme of Hollywood cinema or whether there's something deeper going on, you can't help but escape when you watch Hollywood movies this idea mm -hmm. that black people don't belong in this white reproductive future especially not as like main characters who are able to control their own destiny and fight off the peril that they experience all around them these white characters are able to think through things and be heroic and um, to be versatile but black people are cannon fodder and that's something that's like decades old in Hollywood that I always think about in which this movie absolutely plays into. Yeah, and I think it would be worth looking at uh, the newer iterations now that we're living in this time of representational politics where, you know, they want to cast kind of, uh, they cast Black people. Certainly, um, B.D. Wong comes back in the newer films, I think. Uh, so he's the scientist. Um, and Ian Malcolm's daughter in the next film is black. Yes. Um, her mother is, is absent, like they've broken up. Um, I think the mother is like his ex-wife or something. Um, and so she's, she's black, but she's also kind of colorblind. Like she's, she's just, his, she's just his daughter and ha and has like a close relationship um, with his new uh, girlfriend who is uh, played by Julianne Moore. But like the, the like, where's the mother? Yeah, I mean, Jurassic Park isn't really hospitable to women in general. Uh, so, for example, watching it this time, I was like, Laura Dern's character is the only woman who has speaking lines in the entire movie. It's a two-hour movie, and she has speaking lines as a main character, as 
does a girl, Lex, mm-hmm. one of John Hammond's grandchildren. And that's it. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, though, I loved Laura Dern because she was so badass. She was just as tough as the men. Um, and it was so common that time and today for women to be in nurturing roles. And she was only in a nurturing role insofar as she could use her science for that. So like looking through the poop of the, of the triceratops. Um, but other than that, you know, she was running, she like with a gun, you know, she could, she could do all of that. And that they made Lex um, a hacker and they have this whole cut like, the, the her little brother is like, oh, you're a nerd. And she's like, I prefer to be called a hacker. And of course, you know, she uses her brains to save the day. She uses her um, brains also to, to save her brother in the fantastic kitchen scene <laughs> that is just, you know, seared in my memory, in my, in my childhood nightmares. I, I think that kitchen scene with the Raptors is, is, is really, honestly, I, it's it's one of my favorite scenes ever in any movie. I was just completely, completely terrified the first time that I saw this and like, you know, couldn't get it out of my mind afterwards. And I actually remember uh, buying the VHS of Jurassic Park and having my younger cousins over to watch it and like really not being able to appreciate at that age how friggin' scary this is until I showed it to my younger cousins and they're like, nah, <laughs> we're good. We don't want to see this. So it, it, it's, there's so much about the movie. There, there's just so much about it that's, um, that's wonderfully done. One of the things I noticed too, is that, you know, the, the Raptors became a kind of, along with the T-Rex, obviously, they're kind of stars of the movie. Um, But what is really, really interesting is that the way that this movie builds tension is, again, something that I think like modern film could really take a lesson from. Everybody's waiting to see the T-Rex, right? You hear about the T-Rex right when they get on the island. You know it's there. It's the biggest uh, carnivorous dinosaur. So it's going to do something crazy. But you don't see the T-Rex, the scene with the T-Rex starts an hour into the movie. So halfway through the movie, you have to get before you even get a glimpse of the T-Rex. And even though the raptors are being portrayed throughout as being like these vicious, predatory dinosaurs, you do not see a full like view of a raptor until about an hour and 45 minutes into this movie, essentially 15 minutes before the movie ends. And what that means is that the last 15 minutes of this movie are heavily dominated by them, like trying to escape these raptors. Cause as I said, no one's killing these animals. They're just running from them, but they do such a good job of building that tension up that you don't even need to see them until the very end. And I just think that, that that level of restraint and tension building is really hard to do well and people don't even usually try to do it in film and this movie just well that's one of the reasons for me why it is so brilliant because it creates a lore of something that you want to see and you don't get to experience until the movie is almost over and it's still so satisfying 
Yeah, and film is such a, you know, it's it's a visual medium. And so a lot of cinema really wants to just show you, right? But it makes me think about the ways that like a lot of like 19th century Gothic literature or like think about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like they kind of, like the novel doesn't like describe Mr. Hyde. Like it, you, it lets you use your imagination a lot more, right? Like it's withhold, it's not, it's just showing everything um, because building up that tension is, is makes it more scary. Cause then it can, you can, your imagination can just, just fill it in. I recently rewatched Independence Day and that movie is, I think like the first, uh, it's very much about like, you know, white colonial futurity and stuff as well. Obviously it's called Independence Day. Um, but it's so interesting in the beginning how it like slowly builds that tension. Like something's happening, something's happening. And then it's, an, it's a regular action movie and the action is not done as well as something like Jurassic Park. And that's the thing with Jurassic Park, it does show you ultimately. And so it better as hell show you, you know, do it right, right? And I think it does get it right. Um, and that a lot of that has to do with Desmond, what you were saying about the music, um, certainly the editing, like only showing kind of flashes and fragments, like it shows it to you in such a way that um, it's a payoff for whatever you were imagining or whatever tension was being built up instead of a kind of letdown. And I don't know, I felt like this second, so I did watch Jurassic Park Lost World, um, did not do this as well. Not just, I wait, like I waited so long. I waited 30 years or 25 years to watch um, any sequels to Jurassic Park because I just adore this movie so much. And I was like, the sequels can't be as good. Um, but yeah, the editing and, and all of that, I think of the second film doesn't do it quite as successfully. And that's another you know thing about this being like a perfect movie because it does withhold for so long to build up that tension, but then it actually pays off when you do. Like when you first see that T-Rex, during the storm, you see it in, in fragments and that makes it so much more scary. It's brilliant. It's honestly, honestly brilliant. The way that you, you know, you, they have that um, part where it's stalking Lex and Tim in the car and you just see its big footprint coming and standing beside the car without really showing you the scope of how big this thing is, but you get the impression of how big it is just by seeing its foot and leg next to the vehicle. Like, eh, oh, this movie, really, they really, they really, they did it. They got a whole, th a whole bunch of things right. And I too, I, I haven't been able, you know, <laughs> whatever the, uh, well, I don't know if it's Jurassic World or one of the sequel sequels that has Goldblum in it uh, that came out a couple of years ago. I remember we were talking about this and it has this like scene of him <laughs> it looks like he's like addressing like a congressional hearing <laughs> about like the danger of the dinosaurs. <laughs> and I just think that that's hilarious and like a really good like modern setting um, to like talk about the politics of all of it. But I couldn't bring myself to, I, I watched The Lost World ages and ages ago. It was totally forgettable for me. And I, I, I think that like, you know, I don't want a sequel. I mostly don't want a sequel. I was more aware watching it this time of any that they really built that sequel in with Dennis Nedry mm -hmm. taking all the embryos, trying to escape from the island, 
getting eaten himself by a dinosaur and then all the embryos falling into the mud to eventually like mix and meld and create new crazy (laughs) they set us up they wanted us to know that there could be more but I I didn't care when I watched it the first time or the fifth time or the tenth time it it wasn't the kind of thing where I was like you know I want and 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 I feel like that's always a great thing about a movie versus what we have today sorry I know you're not going to like this drama but like (laughs) Uh, I'm going to pick on Marvel for a second. No, no, no. Pick on Marvel. It's no, no, that's, that's fine. Cause I critique Marvel a lot. I just watch all of them. <laughs> I try to watch these Marvel movies and it <laughs> just like hammers you over the head at the end of every single movie that this is not over, that there is more coming, that this story will continue yeah. and be drawn out. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care though. This wasn't even that good. Like, <laughs> You know, like, I don't know, like, you know, the sequel thing and the need to prolong these stories mm-hmm. for profit and for merchandising and all that is, it's, it's part of the game, but mm-hmm. you know, you gotta, you gotta put down something really, really good in order for me to want to spend a whole next two hours. Yeah. I mean, this is again, the kind of ways that these movies just beget more movies because they cost a lot of money and so they want safe bets. I mean, we could do a whole episode on like reboots and adaptations. I am going to mention one Marvel thing because I do want to talk about something that was very sinister um, in this movie that maybe wasn't on first glance. And that is the little cartoon that they do on the ride where they explain the science and the cartoon is narrated by a little DNA strand with a very kind of like homespun southern accent yep. and in a very particular like nostalgic animated style this fossilized tree sap which we call amber waited for millions of years with the mosquito inside until jurassic park scientists came along using sophisticated techniques they extract the preserved blood from the mosquito and bingo dino dna And it is sinister because you know that there's so much that's being left out from this because it's like, you know, it's a ride. So it's like dumbing down the science for, uh, you know, the paying audience, but it glosses over, you know, all of the problems that of course the, our three, our three scientists bring up um, in the boardroom later, but in Loki, which I actually really liked Loki. I mean, Marvel movies are fun. Like I, I mean, I critique them. I think that they're liberal and, you know, laundering American imperialism and all of that. That's fine. Uh, But uh, Loki, there's also a little cartoon explainer who also has a kind of Southern accent. I feel like that's used as a shorthand of something seems like it's like, familiar and like homey and all of that kind of thing but it's actually sinister see i i've always wondered why that scene was so effective and you're making me think about something else that's almost a parody of this which is um the simpsons and troy mcclure going to bovine university Which is the place where the cows get slaughtered and having this little boy. Graduation. (laughs) Having this little boy who's kind of like, oh, like, 
bovine university like tell me more and it's like actually this is where we like murder the animals that you're gonna eat and it's it's exactly the same thing like it's done in this way that the simpsons is brilliantly dissecting that is supposed to put children at ease but is actually a topic that's like deeply disturbing and that you wouldn't want to get into too deeply with children and of course the ways that they do that in this cartoon is really off-putting because the simpsons is kind of pointing at that and and saying like yeah you, you kind of have to withhold most of the information because otherwise you don't really want to know how this sausage gets made, right? It, it might be a little too much information. I'm curious as to how meat gets from the ranch to my stomach. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down, Jimmy. You just asked a mouthful. It all starts here in the high-density feedlot. Then when the cattle are just right, it's time for them to graduate from Bovine University. Come on, Jimmy. Let's take a peek at the killing floor. <gasps> Don't let the name throw you, Jimmy. It's not really a floor. It's more of a steel grating that allows material to sluice through so it can be collected and exported. So I was just thinking, why bring dinosaurs back? Like, what is this desire to bring dinosaurs back? Is it is it just a kind of classical sort of hubris of like mastery over nature or this fantasy that um, uh, that you know human the human species exists apart from nature and controlling like what is what are dinosaurs in this movie to you oh man that's such a great question i mean i feel like dinosaurs the the first reason to bring them back is that uh sorry to all of our um Christian fundamentalist friends who are no doubt listening to this podcast, but the story goes that dinosaurs and men, uh, dinosaurs and human beings uh, were not um, on the planet at the same time ever. And so by bringing them into the mix together, you are, you are really playing God in a way, and you're doing something that you know in, in the very like strict sense that nature didn't intend, why ever dinosaurs were wiped out. It just wasn't part of the plot that we were ever going to be here at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it shows your kind of mastery. It does show, I think, your apartness mm -hmm. from dinosaur fossils being preserved in the ground the way that they are, I think is like particularly captivating to human beings because there's all kinds of like mollusks and like not that big or seemingly threatening animals who we also have fossil records of, but these dinosaurs, you know, like they, they just, they're captivating because they're, they're huge. And because maybe we imagine that they ruled the earth in their day, the way that we do now. Right. And so I feel like maybe that's part of what is so captivating is that you look at something that has like, a 40 foot span and you think well that thing was king when it mm -hmm. was around nothing could touch that animal it was dominant it had whatever it wanted and it it is maybe a way of like mirroring that of ourselves i don't know um but i i also think that uh again when we talk about this idea that everybody runs away from the dinosaurs and no one tries to control them because they're just 
well, no, nobody, nobody tries to fight them, I should say, because they're just so dangerous. Um, I think that's the attraction is like dinosaur is not a pet, right? It's not something that you can like keep in your house or in your backyard, but the idea that you could nevertheless still have mastery over it and create a space where you could contain it, I think is really attractive to people. You notice that there are no pterodactyls. There are no flying dinosaurs in Jurassic Park for obvious reasons. We would only want to create something that we would be able to have complete dominance and mastery over. I feel like that's very human. And that's where the attraction lies in part two is to be able to master this beast that in another environment you would never be able to control. And of course, it's a very colonial fantasy um, of dom like dominance over the land and whatever, you know, non non-human people who live there. I mean, obviously human human uh, people too. Uh, but yeah, I was, you know, I born and raised in Alberta, dinosaur country. So um, we would go to, well, you were also born in Alberta, <laughs> but yeah, closer to Drumheller than, yeah, shout out to Red Deer. Um, but yeah, we would go to the Drumheller Royal Terrell Museum uh, at least yearly. Um, and so dinosaurs were such a big part of my childhood. And yeah, I think it's this idea where you're asked when you see these fossils to imagine a radically different kind of like earth, a radically different kind of world. Um, like the continents didn't exist in the same way, right? Like there was Pangea uh, and, you know, that kind of way of thinking like, that it was so, so different. Um, I think that, that that's part of the appeal too, is well, what, what would that actually look like? What if we could actually see that? Um, but yeah, of course, um, like, as I said, it's a deeply kind of colonial fantasy of, of mastery. So, so like we're now living in an era where, you know, the wealthy are doing things like creating <laughs> their own little mini space programs a la Elon Musk and Richard Branson. The news this week, uh, this most recent week was that um, Elon Musk is going to actually launch ads in space. Uh, I think you probably heard about that. Well, it turns out it's not quite as bad as that headline would imply. Apparently, the plan is to launch a square-shaped satellite with one side used as a display screen. The satellite will be equipped with a selfie stick so it can film the display screen and then live stream the ads to platforms like YouTube. Oh, good. Using the pinnacle of human ingenuity and engineering to make more of everyone's favorite part of YouTube, the ads. So I, I think maybe it's, it's interesting to think about, like, do, 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 do we actually think if people had the technology to do Jurassic Park now, 30 years after this movie was made, would they? And, and is this something that we would be able to stop? And I think the reason I think about this is that um, I saw a lot of Twitter reaction to the Elon Musk ads in space thing. Not that Twitter is like the be all and end all. It's very close to being the be all and end all for me, but it's just one forum where people have reactions to things I know, but for whatever it's worth, I sensed this 
helplessness and disgust at the idea that this rich man can control outer space by placing ads in the stratosphere and beyond and that people feel disgusted by it, but that there's nothing that they can actually do to stop him. And I wonder if that's maybe also something to think about when we think about this movie 30 years later, is that maybe the technology for Jurassic Park isn't necessarily there, but if people have the money, there's probably really nothing that we would be able to stop them from doing should they have the intention of doing it. And that's kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, it shows what a rich and powerful individual John Hammond can do, what kind of havoc he can um, create. This is already happening, though. Uh, Again, like I mentioned, the IPCC report, you know, we do have all of the tools to mitigate the worst outcomes. Um, I think that, you know, just a handful of companies uh, are creating this climate crisis, even the term climate crisis, you know, that was supposed to uh, soften, you know, the from the term global warming, uh, the globe is warming. Um, and it's fossil fuel companies and it's industry that's doing this. It's not people who are not recycling or who are leaving their heat on, you know, in the winter or, or whatever, right? Um, and so, you know, Hammond being a rich person, he can control life in this way. Um, and but we see this as like a cautionary tale in Jurassic Park, but as a reality in you know what we're living today. So who is the we who could stop Hammond? Who is the we that can stop what is happening today? I don't even know, but you're really making me think how important a character John Hammond is because he's played by an actor in uh, Richard Attenborough who literally plays Santa Claus in another (laughs) movie. Like he is this seemingly benign old man. You don't hear a lot in Jurassic Park. I was thinking about this today. You never really hear too much about how he made enough money Mm -hmm. to be able to have an island where this kind of wild scientific experimentation is happening. And you only get the kind of idea that like, you know, he, he, he had these virtual petting zoos mm-hmm. back in the day, a uh, uh, virtual flea circus, right? Where people would imagine that they could see the fleas mm-hmm. moving these like little automated swing sets and carousels and things like that. You don't get to be a billionaire mm-hmm. by creating a flea circus though. So John Hammond did some shit is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> to get to the place where he could engineer dinosaurs. But that is very cleverly and conveniently left out of this movie, of this uh, white bearded, white Mm -hmm. grandpa kind of figure who just wants people to be in awe Mm -hmm. and in wonder. I actually think that that's actually a brilliant sleight of hand of his characters that we're not too suspicious of John Hammond as being like overly ambitious or sinister maybe we should be i think that's really important because the intention doesn't matter he commodified wonder and that went from the scale of fleas to dinosaurs so we know that there was something in between it was probably he opened you know he could have opened theme parks like he could be like an entertainment mogul or something but he commodified wonder 
And his intention was to bring wonder to everybody. You know, I think it's important that they have him saying this isn't for the super rich, that his individual intention doesn't matter. Do you think that that's what's going on too with things like Branson and Musk uh, having their little space programs is the commodification of wonder? I'd never thought about it in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's totally what's going on because it's like, don't you like space? Why are you getting mad at us for wanting to go to space when like space is awesome and like just shut up and order your like Amazon packages that you get in like one day shipping um, because like workers are peeing in a bottle. I mean, what was, I think these are sinister figures. I'm not saying that because like intention doesn't matter, they're not sinister. In fact, that might like heighten how sinister they are. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've never really thought about it in that in that way of like the commodification of wonder. I'm going to be thinking about that now because I think I think that's a, a really, really big and important idea. And it's like deeply, you know, that's what Jurassic Park is about, right? It's to have a theme park where people can feel that feeling. Even watching Jurassic Park, you're feeling that feeling. Again, back to the beginning of the, the pod when we were talking about the the scenes of the Brachiosaurus and the Triceratops, like we are feeling that wonder too, because it's our fantasy come true as well. Is the fantasy of, you know, little kids who love dinosaur bones to see that too. You know, to a lesser extent, but I think definitely relevant. I'm now thinking of a TV series that came out last year at the beginning of the pandemic and a lot of people watched it because it oh was, no yeah, i'm going to go there i'm really going there. tiger king i i mean this is this is and you know tiger king really really highlights for me how basic human beings are and can be about these desires to like have mastery over the animal kingdom you know the way that you know in in, in the book of Genesis in the Bible that God tells Adam, I made you, but you're, you're special. You're not like all these other animals that I made. You're actually going to be able to have mastery over all these other animals. You're going to get to name them all. You can eat them if you want to. Um, you're set apart. And I watched Tiger King and I was like, it is grotesque, mm -hmm. but it's fascinating how people Ordinary people will line up for hours, will pay hundreds of dollars to be able to like have a tiger cub or a leopard cub in their arms that they can sit and take a picture with, that they can show to people like, hey, like I got to do this really cool thing. And yeah, it was safe and the tiger is not going to eat you. And we have mastery and control. Like, why does Tiger King even exist? Why are there so many people who are interested in that, like, photo op, essentially? But I think it's speaking to the same thing. Like, I, I think it's speaking to this ability to dominate and this ability to be like, you know, you didn't think it was possible, but we figured. And, and, and the thing about Tiger King, too, is that you didn't even have to really be like this, like, billionaire to like start your little like tiger industry. Some of the people who are getting into it and some of the people who are running it and maintaining it are like literally people who have run away from home and who have nothing. People who were in other aspects of their life, like really down on their luck. 
And suddenly everybody wants them. Everybody wants their attention. Everybody wants to come to their business because they can tame and control these animals. And I, and I do think that there is something there. Yeah, it seems it's this. it is similar to Jurassic Park. I could not fuck with Tiger King, so I didn't watch it because um, it was real and I love cats and all of that, so I just couldn't watch it. But I, yeah, this is very much just the mastery. I mean, there is a reason that Tiger King, I think part of the spectacle of it was of like a particular kind of whiteness as well. Yeah, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't fuck with Tiger King, but that is mass, it is about mastery over nature, which... Yeah, also Jurassic Park. I don't blame you. It is pretty rough to watch. I I mean, I got a little bit too into like anyway, let's not go down the maybe Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's for another time. I don't know. Uh but the parallels I think are at least worth um bringing up. So I think we covered a lot of great Jurassic Park ground. And just to wrap up um, at the end of our episodes, um, I want to ask, uh, what else are you thinking about this week? Oh, in, man. A, in a brief way, something else to mention our kind of sundries or miscellany at the end of the episode. One thing I can't stop thinking about, which is going on in my city in Toronto right now, and actually in a broader sense is going on all across Canada is um, the treatment of people who live outside. The treatment of people who are in the summertime and in the winter for some of them sleeping outdoors in our parks, sleeping in ravines, sleeping underneath bridges and expressways and the um, renewed assault by the mayor of our city, John Tory and of his city administration against unhoused people. I can't stop thinking about this because this spring I started doing outreach at a local park here in Toronto called Moss Park where a lot of people have been uh, living and sleeping outdoors. I didn't really know what I was getting into when I started outreach but um, what has happened is that the city has really escalated its violence against unhoused people, which has resulted in um, these really disgusting police actions where literally hundreds of police officers and security officials will descend on a park that may have 25 or 30 people sleeping in it. And um, they come to clear all of the unhoused people out of the park. And because uh, those of us who think that this is disgusting have been trying to mobilize with our friends in the park to try and stop this from happening the city's tactics have become more and more aggressive to the point where now they don't just bring police or security um, they bring fences and they are constructing fences around parks before they clear them out so that no one can get in to stop them and so that it's really even hard for people including the media to see what they're doing when they go in to clear the parks. Um, this isn't brand new. I think the level of it, the amount of police 
brought to these kinds of actions, the constructing of fences, those things are more new. The clearing of uh, of encampments goes back a long, long time in Toronto. And people who I know who are on the street today will tell you about a tent city in a, in a ravine in Toronto being cleared almost 20 years ago. So this has a long history, but it's really been getting me down mm-hmm. because when you see this level of cruelty in your city, um, a city of millions of people were, you know, it's lucky if you can get a few hundred people out to witness this and try to stop it. It speaks to a lack of solidarity. It speaks to a lack of organizing on our part collectively to really support and stand with our friends who are unhoused. It speaks to the giving up by our city administration of trying in any even cosmetic way to address the decades long housing crisis in this city. It's been really hard. Like I'm not living that. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time in the city of Toronto for a while when I lived here, when I was also homeless, but I'm not living it right now, but it really hurts to see the way that this has been playing out. And, you know, I'm doing everything that I can with, a lot of people that I love and care about to fight back. So that's what's been on my mind. So one of the things that we're doing with this podcast, you know, we're not doing a Patreon. We're, we are not going to have advertising. So we're not asking um, people for money for us to run this podcast. Um, but we would like um, people, if they can, to donate to mutual aid, um, at least to boost some mutual aid, um, see what's going on in your community. And so uh, we will be mentioning at the end of episodes places that you could, um, you know, give your support, whether that be monetary or time or even just like retweets, um, you know, for donation links. And so Desmond, you've brought up this really important um, thing that's going on in Toronto. And so where could you kind of direct people if they want to, um, you know, support and house people? Well, I want to direct people specifically to Toronto Indigenous Harm Reduction, which is a grassroots Indigenous-led support system uh, of volunteers. What Toronto Indigenous Harm Reduction does is provide traditional meals to Indigenous folks and others who are living and sleeping outside. They provide clothing, sleeping bags, socks, tarps, really practical kinds of things, firewood, lamps, heaters, things that people need in order to have some of their basic needs met so that they can survive. And um, there's a lot of mutual aid going on and there are a lot of groups that are doing outreach and supporting folks who are living outside in our city. But I wanted to highlight Toronto Indigenous Harm Reduction because of the specific mandate that they have for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. And I will be linking uh, to their donate uh, page in our podcast here so that if you want to support them, you can do so. That would mean a lot. Yeah. So the, what I wanted to talk about, um, thank you for that, that Desmond. I've been looking at some of the pictures coming out of Toronto, just stormtroopers, uh, really just the, the kind of violence and the ways that uh, the city has marshaled all of its resources to um, at, like really attack 
attack and house people has been just awful to see. Um, so yeah, please, please everybody check out um, that information. So we will have, uh, that will be on the show notes on the website and it's going to be um, out of our Twitter account. We'll be, we'll be tweeting out those links as well. Uh, and you can, you know, follow, follow both of us as well. We'll, we'll be uh, retweeting those too. I've been thinking about today, the way that Edmonton police is using TikTok and they had a TikTok, this is their community engagement. They had a TikTok that was basically like, uh, you know, when your wife calls that a, that a boy has come up to like pick up your daughters, like dating your daughter. And it's like, they're, you know, slamming back uh, carbonated drinks that they have to, you know, specify it's water, not beer, because then they're going into to their police car. And it's, it's really violent and it's really, um, it's really old and tired, this kind of trope of like, like it's a sitcom trope, right? Wasn't there, there was a sitcom that was like rules to date my daughter or something like that, right? Um, and so this kind of humor, it's it's really like patriarchal and, and violent, um, but the Edmonton police think it's funny. And I think that is just kind of in a nutshell how like transparently they're there to reproduce the kinds of structural violence that uh, we know we know that they're doing that, you know, people have been talking about very much so during the pandemic, but of course, for for long, long before the pandemic. Um, and so they're using TikTok in this way, these kind of tired patriarchal sitcom tropes. Um, while doing, you know, a lot of, a lot of like real violence. Oh, they're just so transparent. They have no like humor. It's just, it's so bad. So they're telling on themselves. The mutual aid I want to draw attention to is in Edmonton and it's Bear Clan, uh, Bear Clan Patrol Edmonton. So what they do is they intervene when the police um, are harassing, you know, unhoused people, people who are in distress and, um, you know, it's Indigenous run, and uh, the Edmonton police really harasses, you know, harasses Indigenous people and, and Black people um, in the city, so Bear Clan Patrol is a place where you can, you know, at least, um, you know, boost their donation links or, or give your support um, if you live in Edmonton, or I would encourage you if you're not, if you're not here in Edmonton, to look at what kinds of organizations, you know, I would look at the ones that are indigenous led or are led by black people because those are the communities that that are affected and uh yeah give them your your support because we all need to take care of each other amen to that thank you very much for sharing that this is this is what goes back to you know the whole kind of racial capitalism thing that we were talking about in the beginning that it's really fun to talk about pop culture and movies and music and stuff like this and what our hope is is that those conversations always lead us back to ways that we can intervene, ways that we can support other people who are doing good work, ways that it doesn't always feel so powerless and helpless to talk about these issues because we also know that there's incredible work happening and organizing happening that we can plug into and contribute to. So we really encourage you to do that. Yeah, well, this was so fun. Uh, I love talking about movies uh, and love Jurassic Park. So I had a great time this first episode. Thanks, Desmond. Thank you. I hope we did it justice. A big movie for our times. <laughs> uh, the first of many that I'm sure we're going to go over. And um, we thank all of you for listening and hope that you will tune into our next episode. 
see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth.